and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 158, The Best Laid Plans of Adolf Hitler. Last time, despite constant losses, the three great armies of Nazi Germany were moving ever deeper into Soviet Russia, and right alongside them, at times right along with the Panzers leading the way, were the various SS divisions. Yet now was the time of the Raspustista, the rainy season. The German tanks and trucks were bogged down, but so too were the supply trucks, as no German trains could come this far east. The armies moved, but covered fewer miles each day, and even then that meant their supplies had even further to come. Not a recipe for success, at least until Moscow fell. But Stalin still had his multi-layered ring around the capital city, and though he was losing unimaginable numbers of men each week, the Soviet dictator refused to give victory to the hated Hitler. As one staff officer of the Viking division wrote in his diary, Our division needs 136 cubic meters of fuel for vehicles, tanks, and trucks that still worked. But that was on passable roads. In the mud, it is estimated that we need 350 cubic meters. Yet that meant that 700 cubic meters were needed just to send the fuel trucks to the closest storage supply and then return. The math did not add up. So at times that early October, the division just sat there in a defensive posture should the enemy try to take advantage of their immobility. And as mentioned last time, as the supplies had been slowed, so were the men's food deliveries. And sickness set in, with the bodies weakened. Kurt Meyer of the Liebstandata, operating with Army Group South, suffered from jaundice and dysentery, so was forced to give up command of his reconnaissance battalion. His men's morale went even lower. But the men of the SS, and indeed the Wehrmacht, were about to learn of the different kinds of funny, that is, funny haha, and funny strange. On November 6, 1941, the Viking Division was able to take advantage of improved weather and a fresh supply of fuel, though not in the amounts they were used to getting. As the Viking advanced, its anti-tank battalion was engaged by an antiquated cavalry charge. The SS men reduced all around them and chuckled, thinking Stalin must be hard up for horses to be sent out. But as events would show, Stalin, at this point, would have sent out cadets, and did so, before the winter was over. As for the funny strange, that was visited upon the Norland troops, made up of Norwegians and Danes. As a regimental anti-tank gun commander later wrote, I saw several Soviet tanks coming at our position. My four guns opened up fire simultaneously, and I could see clearly that the 3.7-centimeter tracer rounds were on target. I was startled to see the tanks carry on and circle the infantry's dugouts. Round after round was fired by our guns, with no discernible effect. The rounds simply bounced off of the tanks, and only a hit in the suspension or tracks achieved any results. In short, we had the first T-34s in front of us. For all that Nazi propaganda that said Russians were subhuman, this design of theirs was better than anything the Germans had. Ironically, 
Krupp, Germany's armaments family, would get their hands on the plans for T-34s and could have built them with their vaunted steel. However, German pride just knew that Germans were better at everything, hence their designs for Panzers were better. So the adjustments or German-made T-34s never came about. In a further example of having Soviet technology deal a blow to the invaders, later on, but still in 1941, the Viking and Liebstandauta divisions would be hit by the Kajusta rocket launchers. Though only 40 were built before the Germans invaded, Moscow soon picked from the series they had been testing and mass-produced them. These multiple rocket launchers allowed the Russians to deliver explosives to a general area faster than conventional artillery. Yes, their accuracy was weaker, but they were inexpensive to build, fit on any chassis, and were in fact first mounted on ordinary trucks. By the end of 1942, there were 3,237 of them, of various types in the field. By the end of the war, there were just about 10,000 of them. The sound of their launching rockets, once heard, could never be forgotten. But despite all this, and so much more, Hitler wanted Rostov-on-Don to fall. The city itself is just off the top right corner of the Sea of Azov and was the administrative center for the region. The attack was to begin on November 17th. Yet before this could get underway, Army Group South was currently fighting, and losing, to the weather. By mid-November, the cold came and stayed pushing out the rains. But the Germans, whether regular or SS, were still in their summer uniforms and suffered accordingly. Sepp Dietrich, commander of the Liebstandata, watched as his men weakened and then died. Their blood would leave the body from a wound and then freeze right on the spot. Then Dietrich himself suffered first and second degree frostbite on the toes of his right foot and the tanks and trucks suffered as well. There was never enough antifreeze to safeguard the engines. Indeed, crews had to light a wood fire under the engines just to turn them on. The only good news was that the ground was hard enough now, though frozen, to drive on. Despite Sepp Dietrich's physical ailment, General Mackensen believed enough in the Liebstandata to allow it to lead the coming battle. Even better, the 14th Panzer Division would help support the main thrust. On November 17th, the Liebstandata and the 14th Panzers crossed the Tuslov River. They were now only 15 miles north of Rostov. Here, the resistance became stronger. Still, the armored might of the SS and Wehrmacht broke through and pressed on, ever closer to the city's edge. Then, working their way deeper into the city's northernmost suburbs, on November 20th, SS troops made it to the River Don. Then, one of their Obersturmführers led a charge that captured the main rail bridge over the river. November 21st was a great day for the Germans and the SS, as their troops poured over the river and took Rostov proper. Hitler's confidence in his men had paid off. However, instead of just congratulating each other, someone should have been asking the question, was that just a little too easy? Because, ever since November 17th, when the Germans had been approaching the city, 
Soviet forces were being built up, north of the city and just north of the German jump-off point. And on November 21st, the Soviets came south, hitting the closest part of the German line that finished up in Rostov. Throughout the day, the pressure on the German line increased, so much so that it was decided that night that the 14th Corps, just outside of the city, would withdraw back to the Tuslov River. And covering the retreat was the Vikings' Westland Regiment. As for the German forces in Rostov, it was decided to wait to see what the Soviets would do. The withdrawal had been successful. Not too many men were lost. But now Rostov was sticking out in a salient, making a tempting target. While Kleist thought over leaving Rostov altogether, they just didn't have the manpower to face this Soviet force and hold the town. The enemy helped Rundstedt and Kleist make their decision by entering the edges of the town on November 28th. The Soviet infantry held the northern edge of the town, clearing the way for Soviet tanks to push on from there and head south, deeper, into Rostov. This coming urban warfare was not what Rundstedt wanted. Even victory here would mean staggering casualties, something he could not afford. No, better to defeat the enemy in the open. So, as the Soviet army made for the center of town, the Germans gave it to them by leaving, but not to the north. That still would have been too close to the enemy's base of operations. Instead, they traveled west and repositioned themselves on the far side of the Mayos River, about 50 miles west of Rostov. When Hitler heard of this retreat, he was incensed. Then he was told how far the retreat had been and reached a whole new level of apoplexy. After all, it had been the first withdrawal since the war started in 1939. Still enraged, Hitler called Kleist a coward, and as for Rundstedt, he was fired on the spot, to be replaced by General von Reichenau, currently the commander of the 6th Army. Incredibly, considering how much the SS and Wehrmacht had fought when first thrown together, Dietrich stood up for Rundstedt's decision at least to Reichenau. There had been no other option, as the city would have been lost anyways, with only massive German casualties to show for it. As things stood, the force to the west of Rostov was still intact. Then Dietrich asked Reichenau, his new superior officer, to send that same message to Hitler. But being true to his character, Dietrich wasn't done just yet. In case Reichenau did not have the guts to forward this message, and who can blame him, the SS divisional commander sent his latest combat strength report directly to Hitler. The Liebstandante strength, a division named after Hitler himself, had started out with 290 officers and 9,704 men. Those numbers were now down to 157 and 4,556 respectively. Further, of all their vehicles, only 15% were still operational, and that was without the suicidal attempt to hold Rostov. Hitler was still clear enough in his head, at this point, to take Dietrich's numbers into consideration. 
So on December 2nd, he flew out to Army Group South's headquarters at Maripol, itself on the north coast of Azov, about 70 miles behind his retreated army. The Liebstandante's leader did not hesitate to go over the numbers again with the man himself. Somewhat satisfied, Hitler left and made sure that the Army Group South, with the Lieb and the Viking Division, would stay along the River Mayos for the winter. So, Russia had not gone the way of Norway, Denmark, Poland, the Low Countries, and France. It was, after all, a much bigger country. Still, when spring came, Hitler's forces, rested and refused with men and materiel, would finish the job. But how did the great German forces come to such a stalemate? We have seen why in the north and now in the south. So let's take a look at Armour Group Center, which had the goal of taking Moscow before winter proper arrived. Armour Group Center, led by Field Marshal von Bock, had two panzer groups to help encircle massive amounts of enemy troops, eliminating them from their country's defense and then was to go on to knock down the door of the enemy's capital. These two panzer groups consisted of General Hoth's 3rd Panzer Group and Colonel General Guderian's reinforced 2nd Panzer Group. To increase the punching power of Guderian's panzers, he was given Paul Hosser's SS Reich Division, and together they formed the 46th Panzer Corps. Also a part of this panzer corps was the reinforced infantry regiment Großdeutschland and the 10th Panzer Division. It would be the latter two, again, who started out as rivals, that would come to trust and depend on each other as they drove deeper into Russia. As we have seen here and in the regular series, the German armor shattered Stalin's initial line of defense. And by June 27th, the two leading panzer elements of Army Group Center had met east of Minsk, trapping three Soviet armies. Then came the brutal but relatively easy task of breaking up this large enemy group into two smaller ones to begin annihilating them. The fighting was over by July 10th. Of the 625,000 Soviet troops, some 100,000 were killed, and just over 300,000 were taken prisoner. But the rest got away during the fighting. Consoling themselves, the Germans knew that these men were demoralized, and now without any weapons or equipment that they could not carry by hand. Stage one had been a staggering success. Franz Halder, the army chief of staff, wrote, It is thus probably no overstatement to say that the Russian campaign has been won in the space of two weeks. Equally elated, Hitler spoke of holding parades in Moscow, heady times indeed. As for Hassar's Reich Division, Barbarossa started off a little slower for them. As they were pioneers and artillery units, their first job was to build bridges over the River Bug. Not until June 26th did they cross over themselves. And now that they were on the move, their first task was to guard Guderian's southern flank. Staying just north of the Pripet Marshes, one of the largest wetlands in Europe, and about 150 miles east by southeast of Warsaw, the Reich Division crossed river 
after River, but was always told, keep moving, speed was paramount. As Hauser's men kept moving, they were led by the SS Division's reconnaissance and motorcycle troops, but also had a battalion from the Deutschland Regiment and the new assault gun battery, the Stug 3s, for extra firepower. The idea was to keep the enemy running, never having time to set up ambushes. But should they turn and fight, the mixture of mobile artillery and infantry was expected to handle them. On July 3rd, the enemy before the Reich Division did stop to give resistance. Taking a chance, Hauser sent in the SS Infantry Regiment No. 11. These former camp guards had yet to see action, but did Hauser proud as they pushed the enemy back into some nearby forests. But in war, things are not always what they appear. On July 4th, the SS lead elements crossed the river Veresnia in Belarusia, a tributary of the Dnieper River. This was done easily enough, and it helped convince Guderian that the enemy was still scattered and in shock after the massive encirclement near Bielystok and Minsk. Getting ever closer to the Dnieper, the SS leading units ran into some woods. Not overly stressed, they had to watch out for ambushes, but they also realized that the woods made for excellent hideaways for the enemy, in case they were not in any shape to fight. But then came the third potential problem of thick woods. When the rains came, the grounds turned to swamps. Nothing for it, the SS motorcycles continued on, but their mobility was hampered. Hopefully this was not a foretelling of more challenging times to come. Then the Russians showed their uninvited guests another use of the thick woods. The Soviets had set up hidden positions that could not be seen from the front or the sides or from above, as in German reconnaissance flights. But when the Germans passed by one of these positions, the Russians would wait for them to completely pass and then open up in a powerful first volley of fire. The Germans would react to this, of course, but they did so only after being fired upon. The Germans won these engagements, but lost men in doing so. And then, many times, the Russians would simply disappear into the trees. Another costly lesson. But Berlin said, push on to the Dnieper. By July 9th, the lead of Army Group Center was approaching the Dnieper, and everyone on the German side just knew that the Soviets were on the other side, in force. But this, too, had to be crossed, to keep the drive towards Moscow going. But as elaborate as the 46 Panzer Corps' plans were to sneak up and trick the defending enemy units on their side of the river, it all proved unnecessary. On July 11th, as the SS Reich and 10th Panzer Division prepared to close in on their side of the river and engage, the Luftwaffe began their pre-attack bombardment. At 3.30 p.m., the Germans began crossing over. But to their shock and immense relief, the Soviets had abandoned their well-built defenses. It must have been the aerial attack that did the trick. Either way, the Germans crossed over, jubilant. With this last hurdle cleared, it was time to drive on to the town of Yelnya, about 40 miles southeast of Smolensk. 
Army Group Center was hoping for another large encirclement of enemy troops around Smolensk. But first, with the SS leading the way, they had to reach Yelnya to close the trap. However, this would be difficult, as there were sure to be other Soviet forces to the east of the town. So the SS Reich and 10th Panzer Division had to be on their toes. One, they had to enclose the trap, and two, they had to keep back whatever Soviet troops were nearby who would want to rescue their comrades. Which is why, when the Reich Division was ordered to the front, this left some officers scratching their heads. Up till now, the division had acted as support for the panzers. Now they were to be the tip of the spear. Were they up to it? Didn't matter. Orders were orders. On July 21st, the Reich and 10th Panzer Division reached Yelnya. But, as there was a height to the east of the town, that had to be taken as well. To leave a nearby height to the enemy was asking for rain, in the form of artillery shells, and nature's downpours had been bad enough to contend with. On the morning of July 22nd, the attack for the hill was to start, but first Hauser wanted to go over the plans again with his officers. No mistakes were to be tolerated. Hitler was watching. But during that meeting, the enemy began a mortar barrage from the height, a sign of things to come in which two of the attendees were injured. Still, the attack got underway. On that hot and humid July day, the Deutschland and De Fuhrer regiments led the way. And as the sun fell, they reached the heights, but credit also had to go to their artillery support, which pounded the enemy, just as the German soldiers were about to reach the height. Another successful battle, yet... By then, the artillery units were completely out of shells, and this problem of supplies would never stop during Barbarossa, certainly the further east they went. For all its experience in panache, to have first-rate tanks, first-rate tank commanders, and first-rate crews, the panzer groups were limited in every way based upon the latest shipments, not the way to win a massive land war. But the battle for the Smolensk enclosure was not over. The next day, the 23rd, the Soviets, though pushed back, regrouped and launched their own attack. The Germans held out that day, but just barely, despite their lack of supplies. The 24th of July came, and so did the Soviets, again sensing victory. During the fighting along one point of the German line, because by this point there was no thought of moving forward, being low on shells and fuel, an officer in charge of an anti-tank gun gaped as eight Soviet tanks headed his way. The following took place between his crew and the enemy. The commander ordered his crew to hold their fire until the tanks were within 50 meters. This was not only to save on artillery shells, but to make sure that they had the best chance of knocking out a tank with each shot. And it was standard practice to hit the first tank, then the last tank, so the column in the middle would be stuck, and then their guns could take out the rest of the tanks. As such, the first tank was hit. At this range, the shell did its job. Then the anti-tank crew was aiming at the last tank, 
when suddenly the second tank turned out to be a flamethrower. Within seconds, huge spouts of fire were coming at the Germans. Even worse, the crews of the Soviet tanks jumped out of their vehicles and charged at the Germans. Not expecting this unusual move, the Germans regrouped themselves, gathered anything to hand, tools, pistols, grenades, and in their turn, charged at the Russians. This melee went on for five minutes as the two groups hacked and shot at each other at close range. Then, at the end of those five minutes, all the Russians were dead. The SS men went back to their guns and destroyed the rest of the enemy's tanks. Yet this act of bravery was about to be all for naught. To the left of this position, an army unit did run out of shells. They had an emergency stash, but as the fighting here had been the most intense, those shells did not last long. Sensing something, the Russians came forward here and took the small town in that area. The Germans, embarrassed, regrouped and went back in, claiming the town once again. In fact, control of this town exchanged hands several times that day. Either way, this was a weak link in the German line. Should the Russians send tanks here, the gap could be widened and exploited, allowing the enemy to hit the Germans from behind. At 5 p.m., word of this weak link was sent to the SS Reich's senior staff officer, but all of his division had been deployed. There was no one else to plug up the hole. So the officer grabbed up what men he could around him from the Pioneer Battalion. He also grabbed three assault guns and four anti-tank guns. This scratch battle group approached their side of the town. They quickly took out several Soviet tanks and large guns who were caught unawares. Then the officer's men went back into the town and pushed the Soviet infantry out, who thought their fighting was over for the day. Yet the Russians had not given up yet. The next day, July 25th, more artillery was brought forward to bombard the SS soldiers. The intensity of this shelling was something they had never experienced before. But while it went on, the SS men dug their holes even deeper to protect themselves. July 26th saw even more shelling, but then Soviet infantry came at the SS regiments, who had to keep their heads down but simultaneously fight off these attacks. By July 27th, it was the Soviets who were now running low on shells. Between this and German reinforcements, not to mention the arrival of more ammunition, the German line was reinforced. Just over a week later, the SS units were taken off of the front line for some much-needed rest, but they had proven their worth. Still, between July 22nd and August 8th, the SS had suffered 1,663 casualties, dead, wounded, or missing. And their mission, that of closing the trap, had paid off. Some 300,000 Soviet soldiers were captured. But, one, Army Group Center needed a serious rest, and two, the OKH, the German High Command, now knew that the enemy was determined to stay in the fight, regardless of how many men they lost. As for General Holder, 
the man who had been so confident that this was the beginning of the end of Soviet Russia, now wrote, At the outset of the war, we reckoned with about 200 enemy divisions. Now we have already counted 360. And Moscow was still far out of sight. To be sure, Guderian and Hoth wanted to push on and take Moscow to end this war, but clearly Army Group Center was incapable of any more major leaps of territory, even if entirely new enemy armies were not in their way. Either way, the next move would be decided by the German High Command. Most of the generals there were of one mindset, rest and then move out, but Hitler thought he saw a way to capture two birds with one stone, to destroy the enemy and to take his precious oil. This despite an old Chinese saying, he who follows two hares catches neither. 